Hi, welcome to History's Great Speeches. I'm Charles Featherston, voice artist, narrator and compiler of the series. Please like or subscribe and feel free to contact me via Bandcamp, Podbean, Facebook or Patreon to let me know speeches or time periods you'd like to see covered. You can find a full set of links at my website, charlesfeatherston.uk. John Calvin, A Treatise on Relics, 1543, Part 1 St. Augustinus complains in his work entitled The Labour of Monks that certain people were, even in his time, exercising a dishonest trade, talking about relics of martyrs, and he adds the following significant words, should they really be relics of martyrs? from which we may infer that even then abuses and deceits were practised by making simple folk believe that bones picked up anywhere were bones of saints. And since the origin of this abuse is so ancient, there can be no doubt that it has greatly increased during a long interval of years, particularly as the world has been much corrupted since that age and has continued to deteriorate until it has arrived at its present condition. Now, the origin and root of this evil has been that, instead of discerning Jesus Christ in his word, his sacraments and his spiritual graces, the world has, according to its custom, amused itself with his clothes, shirts and sheets, leaving thus the principle to follow the accessory. It did the same thing with the apostles, martyrs and other saints, and instead of observing their lives in order to imitate their examples, it directed all its attention to the preservation and admiration of their bones, shirts, sashes, caps and other similar trash. I know well that there is a certain appearance of real devotion and zeal in the allegation that the relics of Jesus Christ are preserved on account of the honour which is rendered to him and in order the better to preserve his memory. But it is necessary to consider what St. Paul says, that every service of God invented by man, whatever appearance of wisdom it may have, is nothing better than vanity and foolishness if it has no other foundation than our own devising. Moreover, it is necessary to set the profit derived from it against the dangers with which it is fraught, and it will thus be found that to have relics is a useless and frivolous thing, which will most probably gradually lead towards idolatry, because they cannot be handled and looked upon without being honoured, and in doing this, men will very soon render them the honour which is due to Jesus Christ. In short, the desire for relics is never without superstition, and what is worse, it is usually the parent of idolatry. Everyone admits that the reason why our Lord concealed the body of Moses was that the people of Israel should not be guilty of worshipping it. Now, we may conclude that the act to be avoided with regard to the body of Moses must be equally shunned with regard to the bodies of all other saints, and for the same reason, because it is sin. But let us leave the saints and consider what St. Paul says of Jesus Christ himself, for he protests that he knew him not according to the flesh, but only after his resurrection, signifying by these words that all that is carnal in Jesus Christ must be forgotten and put aside and that we should employ and direct our whole affections to seek and possess him according to the Spirit. Consequently, the pretense that it is a good thing to have some memorials either of himself or of the saints to stimulate our piety is nothing but a cloak for indulging our foolish cravings which have no reasonable foundation. And should even this reason appear insufficient, it is openly repugnant to what the Holy Ghost has declared by the mouth of St. Paul, and what can be said more? 
It is of no use to discuss the point whether it is right or wrong to have relics merely to keep them as precious objects without worshipping them, because experience proves that this is never the case. It is true that St. Ambrose, in speaking of Helena, the mother of the Emperor Constantine the Great, who sought with great trouble and expense for the cross of our Lord, says that she did not worship the wood, but the Lord who was suspended upon it. But it is a very rare thing that a heart disposed to value any relics whatever should not become to a certain degree polluted by some superstition. I admit that people do not arrive at once at open idolatry, but they gradually advance from one abuse to another until they fall into this extremity, and indeed, those who call themselves Christians have, in this respect, idolatrized as much as pagans ever did. They have prostrated themselves and knelt before relics just as if they were worshipping God. They have burnt candles before them in sign of homage. They have placed their confidence in them and have prayed to them as if the virtue and the grace of God had entered into them. Now, if idolatry be nothing else than the transfer elsewhere of the honour which is due to God, can it be denied that this is idolatry? This cannot be excused by pretending that it was only the improper zeal of some idiots or foolish women, for it was a general custom approved by those who had the government of the church and who had even placed the bones of the dead and other relics on the high altar in the greatest and most prominent places in order that they should be worshipped with more certainty. It is thus that the foolish fancy which people had at first for collecting relics ended in this open abomination. They not only turned from God in order to amuse themselves with vain and corruptible things, but even went on to the execrable sacrilege of worshipping dead and insensible creatures instead of the one living God. Now, as one evil never comes alone but is always followed by another, it thus happened that where people were seeking for relics, either of Jesus Christ or the saints, they became so blind that whatever name was imposed upon any rubbish presented to them, they received it without any examination or judgment. Thus the bones of an ass or dog, which any hawker gave out to be the bones of a martyr, were devoutly received without any difficulty. This was the case with all of them, as will be shown hereafter. For my own part, I have no doubt that this has been a great punishment inflicted by God. Because as the world was craving after relics and turning them to a wicked and superstitious use, it was very likely that God would permit one lie to follow another. For this is the way in which he punishes the dishonour done to his name when the glory due to him is transferred elsewhere. Indeed, the only reason why there are so many false and imaginary relics is that God has permitted the world to be doubly deceived and fallen since it has so loved deceit and lies. The first Christians left the bones of the saints in their graves, obeying the universal sentence that all flesh is dust and to dust it must return, and did not attempt their resurrection before the appointed time by raising them in pomp and state. This example has not been followed by their successors. On the contrary, the bodies of the faithful, in opposition to the command of God, have been disinterred in order to be glorified when they ought to have remained in their places of repose awaiting the last judgment. They were worshipped, every kind of honour was shown to them, and people put their trust in such things. And what was the consequence of all this?
The devil, perceiving man's folly, was not satisfied with having led the world into one deception, but added to it another by giving the names of relics of saints to the most profane things. And God punished the credulous by depriving them of all power of reasoning rightly, so that they accepted without inquiry all that was presented to them, making no distinction between white or black. It is not my intention now to discuss the abominable abuse of the relics of our Lord as well as of the saints at this present time in the most part of Christendom. This subject alone would require a separate volume, for it is a well-known fact that the most part of the relics which are displayed everywhere are false and have been put forward by impostors who have most impudently deceived the poor world. I have merely mentioned this subject to give people an opportunity of thinking it over and of being upon their guard. It happens sometimes that we carelessly approve of a thing without taking the necessary time to examine what it really is, and we are thus deceived for want of warning. But when we are warned, we begin to think and become quite astonished at our believing so easily such an improbability. This is precisely what has taken place with the subject in question. People were told, this is the body of such a saint, these are his shoes, those are his stockings, and they believed it to be so, for want of timely caution. But when I shall have clearly proved the fraud which has been committed, all those who have sense and reason will open their eyes and begin to reflect upon what has never before entered their thoughts. The limits of my little volume forbid me from entering but upon a small part of what I would wish to perform, for it would be necessary to ascertain the relics possessed by every place in order to compare them with each other. It would then be seen that every apostle had more than four bodies, and each saint at least two or three, and so on. In short, if all the relics were collected into one heap, the only astonishment would be that such a silly and clumsy imposition could have blinded the whole earth. As every, even the smallest Catholic church, has a heap of bones and other small rubbish, what would it be if all those things which are contained in two or three thousand bishoprics, twenty or thirty thousand abbeys, more than forty thousand convents, and so many parish churches and chapels were collected into one mass? The best thing would be not merely to name, but to visit them. In this town of Geneva, there was formerly, if it is said, an arm of St. Anthony, it was kissed and worshipped as long as it remained in its shrine, but when it was turned out and examined, it was found to be the bone of a stag. There was on the high altar the brain of St. Peter, and so long as it rested in its shrine, nobody ever doubted its genuineness, for it would have been blasphemy to do so. But when it was subjected to a close inspection, it proved to be a piece of pumice stone. I could quote many instances of this kind, but these will be sufficient to give an idea of the quantity of precious rubbish that would have been found if a thorough and universal investigation of all the relics of Europe had ever taken place. Many of those who look at relics close their eyes from superstition, so that in regarding these they see nothing. That is to say, they dare not properly gaze at and consider what they properly may be. Thus many who boast of having seen the whole body of St. Claude, or of any other saint, have never had the courage to raise their eyes and to ascertain what it really was. The same thing may be said of the head of Mary Magdalene, which is shown near Marseille with eyes of paste or wax. It is valued as much as if it were God himself who had descended from heaven, but if it were examined, the imposition would be clearly detected.
It would be desirable to have an accurate knowledge of all the trifles which in different places are taken for relics, or at least a register of them, in order to show how many of them are false. But since it is impossible to obtain this, I should like to have at least an inventory of relics contained in ten or twelve such towns as Paris, Toulouse, Poitiers, Reims, and so on. If I had nothing more than this, it would form a very curious collection. Indeed, it is a wish I am constantly entertaining to get such a precious reparatory. However, as this is too difficult, I thought it would be as well to publish the following little warning, to awaken those who are asleep, and to make them consider what may be the state of the entire church if there is so much to condemn in a very small portion of it. I mean, when people find so much deception in the relics I shall name, and which are far from being the thousandth part of those that are exhibited in various parts of the world, what must they think of the remainder? Moreover, if those which had been considered as the most authentic proved to be fraudulent inventions, what can be thought of the more doubtful ones? Would to God that Christian princes thought a little on this subject! For it is their duty not to allow their subjects to be deceived, not only by false doctrine, but also by such manifest impositions. They will indeed incur a heavy responsibility for allowing God to be thus mocked when they could prevent it. I hope, however, that this little treatise will be of general service by inducing people to think on the subject. For, if we could have the register of all the relics that are to be found in the world, men would clearly see how much they had been blinded and what darkness and folly overspread the earth. Let us begin with Jesus Christ, about whose blood there have been fierce disputations. For many maintained that he had no blood except of a miraculous kind. Nevertheless, the natural blood is exhibited in more than a hundred places. They show at Rochelle a few drops of it, which, as they say, was collected by Nicodemus in his glove. In some places they have vials full of it, as, for instance, at Mantua and elsewhere. In other parts they have cups filled with it, as in the church of St. Eustace at Rome. They did not rest satisfied with simple blood. It was considered necessary to have it mixed with water as it flowed out of his side when pierced on the cross. This is preserved in the church of St. John of the Lateran at Rome. Now I appeal to the judgment of everyone whether it is not an evident lie to maintain that the blood of Jesus Christ was found, after a lapse of seven or eight hundred years, to be distributed over the whole world, especially as the ancient church makes no mention of it. Then come the things which have touched the body of our Lord. Firstly, the manger in which he was placed at his birth is shown in the church of Madonna Maggiore at Rome. In St. Paul's church there are preserved the swaddling clothes in which he was wrapped, though there are pieces of these clothes at Salvatiera in Spain. His cradle is also at Rome, as well as the shirt his mother made for him. At the church of St. James in the same city is shown the altar upon which he was placed at his presentation in the temple as if there had been many altars, according to the fashion of the popish churches where any number of them may be erected. This is what they show relating to the time of Christ's childhood. It is indeed not worth while seriously to discuss whence they obtained all this trash so long a time after the death of Jesus Christ. That man must be of little mind who cannot see the folly of it. There is no mention of these things in the Gospels, and they were never heard of in the times of the Apostles. About fifty years after the death of Jesus Christ, Jerusalem was destroyed. 
Many ancient doctors have written since, mentioning fully the occurrences of their time, even to the cross and nails found by Helena, but these absurdities are not alluded to. But what is more, these things were not brought forward at Rome during the days of St. Gregory, as may be seen from his writings. Whilst after his death, Rome was several times taken, pillaged and almost destroyed. Now what other conclusion can be drawn from these considerations but that all these were inventions for deceiving silly folks? This has even been confessed by some monks and priests who call them pious frauds, that is, honest deceits for exciting the devotion of the people. After these come the relics belonging to the period from the childhood to the death of Jesus Christ, such as the water pots in which Christ changed water into wine at the marriage feast of Cana in Galilee. One would naturally inquire how they were preserved for so long a time, for it is necessary to bear in mind that they were not discovered until 800 or a thousand years after the performance of the miracle. I cannot tell all the places where these water pots are shown, I only know that they can be seen at Pisa, Ravenna, Cluny, Antwerp and Salvatierra in Spain. At Orleans they have even the wine which was obtained by that miracle, and once a year the priests there give to those who bring offerings a small spoonful, saying that they shall taste of the very wine made by our Lord at the marriage feast, and its quantity never decreases, the cup being always refilled. I do not know of what date are his shoes, which are preserved in a place at Rome called Sancta Sanctorum, or whether he had worn them in his childhood or manhood. But this is of little moment, for what I have already mentioned sufficiently shows the gross imposition of producing now the shoes of Jesus Christ, which were not possessed by the apostles in their time. Now let us proceed to the last supper which Christ had with his apostles. The table is at St. John of the Lateran at Rome, some bread made for that occasion at Salvatierra in Spain, and the knife with which the paschal lamb was carved is at Treves. Now, is it necessary to observe that Christ made that supper in a borrowed room, and on going from thence he left the table which was not removed by the apostles? Jerusalem was soon afterwards destroyed. How, then, could the table be found after a lapse of 800 years? Moreover, in the early ages tables were made of quite a different shape to those of our days, for people then took their repasts in a lying, not in a sitting posture a circumstance expressly mentioned in the Gospels. The deceit is therefore quite manifest, without more being added to prove it. The cup in which Christ gave the sacrament of his blood to the apostles is shown in Notre Dame d'Ile, near Lyon, and there is another in a convent of Augustine monks in the Abelchois, which is the true one. The case of the dish upon which the paschal lamb was placed is still worse, for it is to be found at Rome, at Genoa, and at Arles. If these holy relics be genuine, the customs of that time must have been quite different from ours, because, instead of changing viands as we now do, the dishes were changed for the same food. The same may be said of the towel with which Jesus Christ wiped the feet of the apostles after having washed them. There is one at Rome at the Lateran, one at Aix la Chapelle, and one at St. Cornel of Compagne with the print of the foot of Judas. Some of these must be false but we will leave the contending parties to fight out their own battles until one of them shall establish the reality of his cause. 
It appears to me, however, that trying to make people believe that a towel which Jesus Christ had left in the place where it was used had in several hundred years afterwards found its way into Germany and Italy is nothing better than a gross imposture. I nearly forgot to mention the bread with which 5,000 persons were miraculously fed in the desert and of which a bit is shown at Rome and another piece at Salvatierra in Spain. The scripture says that a portion of manna was preserved in remembrance of God having miraculously fed his people in the desert. But the gospel does not say a word respecting the preservation of the fragments of the five loaves for a similar purpose. The subject is not mentioned in any ancient history, nor does any ecclesiastical writer speak of it. It is therefore very easily perceived that the above-mentioned pieces of bread are of modern manufacture.